Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we talk about how to invest in public companies, mostly. But everything we're learning here applies to all sorts of investing, including real estate, including... Yeah, that's actually the cool thing about it that I've learned, is that you've been telling me it applies to all sorts of different things, not just public companies. Yeah, I mean, you've already been a successful real estate investor. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank um, you. Because uh, I bought and, a condo and sold it. Yep, you did. And uh, now you're learning, you know, numbers to apply to, to, you know, in general in real estate investing that you can do other real estate with if you want to down the road or farm properties or something like that. It's true. I've been really surprised at how much this rule number one investing stuff has applied to non-public company stuff. I mean, obviously, it would have also applied, applied to private stuff, private company stuff, but also just like looking around like what kind what's the value of things you know what's the value of like that random conglomerate down the street like i don't know i'm just finding interesting funny ways that it's uh coming up it's pretty intuitive i think that to think like a rule one investor i mean if we were to go out and buy um old cars let's say old classic cars um we could do it as a speculator where you would buy the car hoping that it would go up in price in which case you probably are going to pay top dollar, right? And you get a very nice car, buying it at full retail, and you're holding it with the expectation that it'll go up in price. That's like people buy art like that all the time, right? Yeah. They're buying a Picasso, they're buying an O'Keefe, and they, they're expecting that over time it'll go up. And um, that's speculation, of course. That's not an investment per se, um, but it can be an effective way to invest uh, or to <laughs> effective way to make money, I should say. Um, or you can do it like we do with rule number one. You you would have a lot of trouble doing that with art because it doesn't produce any cash flow. But you can certainly do it with cars that you're going to flip, right? Where you know that the retail value. I guess you could do it with art. I mean, if you I saw mean, yeah. if you saw a Picasso I, at a garage sale, you could totally do it. I would say that art has an intrinsic value to it, unlike many other things. No, I wouldn't think so. I would. I, <laughs> Okay, well, let's define intrinsic value. Well, it's not the cash flow, obviously, because there's no <laughs> there's no cash flow coming off of it unless you I don't know rent it out. But um, but it has an, uh, there are certain pieces of art that have such uh, they're such important pieces or are just so naturally beautiful that I don't see there's ever going to be a time when they're not valuable to people. Now they might be worth less than you paid, which is different. Right. But I don't think they're going to be worth zero. OK, true enough. All right. So let's, let's say that that the um, the value of a thing is its intrinsic value. That is that it, the price, the, the price that it will hold. And all we can really say about art, you know, good, great paintings is that we, it will hold some. That it has intrinsic yeah. value. It's difficult to say what it actually would be. But we know that if we are able to buy a Picasso at a garage sale for a dollar and it's a real Picasso, then we know that that has intrinsic value probably significantly more than the dollar. I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, a Picasso is, in quotes, a Picasso for a reason. They're incredible. They're better than other art. So I do think, yeah, yeah. there's yeah. an intrinsic value there. I just yeah. went to this amazing Picasso museum in Lucerne in Switzerland a few weeks ago um, that was a private collection by an art dealer who just was friends with Picasso. And he was friends with a bunch of other artists as well. And um, 
and collected their art and got to be around them and, and then also was an art dealer and he hated to sell paintings which made was very bad for business so he ended up giving his daughter all like hundreds of picassos and different hundreds artists. of picassos and other amazing pieces of art it, it was incredible it's a four-story building filled with art wow and um and then she donated it to the city, basically, and made it a public museum. Which oh, is just my gosh, incredible. that's so cool. And I was walking around there going, it's funny that you brought up Picasso's because I was just there. And I was walking around there going like, well, you know, I don't, frankly, I don't know much about art. I don't know if whatever. It's Picasso. We'll go see it. I don't know. And I walked around and I just was so struck by how extraordinary those paintings were and that they make you feel things that are different than other other canvases with paint on them. It's really, really extraordinary. So when, yes, I think there's an intrinsic value to certain kinds. You of know, when you were about two years old, I was working um, on a, building a company with Dr. Jonas Salk, and he invited me to dinner along with, you know, Uncle Bill, Bill Witherspoon, who you know, <laughs> um, over to his house where we met his wife, Francois Gillot, and oh yeah, and she was um, she was not married, I think, but she was with Pablo Picasso for a very long time. And she, there are some paintings of her in this museum. Yeah, and she, and I walked into their house. Now remember, this is this is me a couple years after I stopped being a river guide full time, have <laughs> no experience with any of these finer aspects of life whatsoever. Okay. So no clue, no background in it. And I walked into the house and there are these Picasso-like paintings on the wall. But, and to your point, they were stunning. I mean, I knew nothing about quality art at all. Did you know that she had been connected to, to Picasso? I did. So okay. I assumed that these were probably Picassos or she painted in that same style mm. and some of them were hers. Uh, but. Mm. All I know is that they were very, very powerful paintings. I mean, you know that uh, when they hit you in the gut, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah. You, it's not because you know that they're valuable. Exactly, exactly. That's so, pretty cool. Yes, I do think that uh, that there's some intrinsic value there, but that's not to say it's you know eighty million dollars versus three dollars, like. Right. <laughs> You know, there's so it's somewhere in there, or it's 150 million, or whatever Picassos are selling for these days. So, well, no question though, you can you can find things that don't have cash flow. So, you know, I've I've often argued that you know it's not a it's not a a real investment asset unless it has cash flow. But if you're going to flip things as a matter of of course, or save them until you can sell them, because you know that there is an intrinsic value above the price you paid, mm -hmm. then that's investing. And I, and I, I, I mentioned sometimes, you know, the student of ours that buys mink coats at garage sales, but it could be, it doesn't have to be a mink coat. It could be a vase. It could be a collector's item, the little porcelain figurines. It could be lead soldiers from the 17th century. You know, it, it could be anything like that that has a kind of a low end value, a quick flip price that you know because you know this subject you know you can flip it and if you're buying it for half of that that's an investment i would i would agree that that's an investment yeah i think so you know your market that's you know the your market. important part. yeah 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 so you know we're uh, not not to drag us away from this it's fascinating but 
Let's talk about our market, Dad. Let's talk about our management team. <laughs> in our exactly. <laughs> our talk market about being trying to figure out how on earth to put understand companies managers. in our portfolio. Yeah. And so we've time, been talking you... about um, back to basics. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, last time. What's a bad CEO look like to you now that you've had a little bit of information well, from last time? Hold on. Let me just introduce where we are. Okay. So we're doing we're doing a series called Back to Basics, which is when we have been talking about these four principles of investing that Charlie Munger laid out for us. I'm not going to play his video, his tape. Maybe I'll play him next time. But he, he goes through quickly the four principles of investing, which are being capable of understanding the company. Uh, the company has an intrinsic, durable, competitive advantage. They would like to have management with integrity. And then you have to get it for a good price or a fair price, I think is what he says. Um, so we've been through the first two. And last time we started talking about management and how to figure out if management has integrity or not. And we talked a bit about how important that is. And then you gave uh, six ways that a CEO is bad, a bad CEO, like a bad Santa. So these are these are all red flags. Um, some of them are absolutely screaming at you that this is a bad CEO. But some of them are just red flags that could happen even with a good CEO. But you need to flag that and dig in deeper. So you want to go down that list real quick? Yeah, let me let me go down and you tell me if I get it right. OK, All right, good. OK, so number one. The CEO, this is for a bad CEO. The CEO's paychecks go up with the size of the business going up. Right. I'm not sure how you tell if the size of the business went up, actually. Well, just, we're talking about assets. So you look at the balance sheet and you see that the asset number, you get, balance sheet has assets, liabilities, and equity. So you just look at the assets. And if the assets are getting larger every year, typically in big jumps because they're acquiring things, you know, so four years ago, they had a, a billion dollars. Now they've got two billion dollars of assets of assets. OK, right. So what you should look for is if the CEO, if the CEO's paycheck is related to return on equity or return on invested capital going up. Yep. OK, two, the CEO has very little personal investment in company stock, yep. meaning they probably own a little bit of it. And they might have gotten some through options or through being granted some by the board. We don't care about that. Right. What we care about is them taking their own personal money out of their own personal bank account and buying the stock of the company. Right on. Right and on. if they haven't done that, then that's to me, that's a huge red flag. Yep. Big red flag. Uh, three is that acquisitions of the company reduce return on equity and return on invested capital and the debt of the company is going up. Yep. Bad sign. So, Basically, it's like those good numbers are going down and the bad number is going up. Right. Yeah, that's, that's bad. Right. Um, but specifically due to acquisitions, you say. So meaning like they're trying to expand the size of the company and sacrificing the company numbers to do that. Right. We don't like okay. them going down in any case. We don't like debt going up in any case. But it's particularly onerous when they're acquiring businesses. We don't like that at all. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So four, the CEO is selling stock or using the stock to buy other companies. Not good. Well, no, um, no, wait, wait. They're selling the stock of the company or using it to buy other companies. 
at a at a price point that is lower than the value of the business. And oh, that's telling the one where that. you said it was criminal, and I stopped writing because I was trying to figure out what you were talking about. <laughs> They're actually <laughs> telling people, yeah, you know, this is worth a dollar a share, and we're selling it to you for 75 cents. Wait a second. Wait a second. That You, you, you shouldn't be able to do that. That's just not right. Okay? Yeah. I was trying to figure to out why selling like stock that. or using it to buy companies was such a bad thing. That happens yeah. all the time. Oh, yeah. All the time. So that's cool. It's just that if they're doing it at a reduced price. Right. Okay. Five. The CEO's letter to shareholders is a salesy pitch that doesn't mention bad stuff that happened right. in the last year. Right. And six is the CEO's focused on EBITDA as if it's cash flow. And worse is if they focus on adjusted EBITDA. And you said that you can tell if they're focused because they will make a big deal about it at the quarterly, uh, in the quarterly report or in the, um, the Q&A with shareholders or in the annual report. Yep. Perfect. All right. Okay. Those are our six things. So, so at the end, you said there are three numbers to talk about, and then you didn't explain it at all. So what are the three numbers? So they're actually in number three there, that, that when acquisitions are reducing the, the, the uh, return on equity, return on invested capital, or adding debt, those are the three numbers in management that we look for uh, as, a, as a kind of objective way to judge how the management team is doing, whether they're acting in our in our best interests or whether they're acting in their own best interest, right? Okay. And so this management team, um, let's say, for example, in CF Industries, this management team, uh, this is one of the largest agricultural fertilizer companies in the world. And this management team in the last three or four years has added debt, just an enormous pile of debt. When the company mm -hmm. didn't have any going all the way back for many, 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 many years, virtually no debt. And all of a sudden, you've got this huge pile of debt. So why okay? are they raising money? So they get, well, they're, they're bringing in all this debt to pay for acquisitions and to pay for new plants that they're building um, and to continue to pay dividends, even if the company isn't producing enough free cash flow to do that. I always start to worry. I, I sort of call it the GM phenomenon, right? Because I wrote yeah. about it in rule number one. That yeah, GM was paying dividends till the end, right to the end on borrowed dollars, right? So it's uh, we would almost call it the first refuge of scoundrels is <laughs> to start loading up the debt so that they can continue to pay out uh, dividends and not upset the market, right? <laughs> so it's, that's a that's a big big thing when we see these guys adding debt. Um, and, and you have to you have to dig in deep and make sure you understand why they're adding debt and that it's uh, going to produce a really good return on that debt, which is included in the number return on invested capital. All right. So let's break this down a little bit. Return on equity is the earnings of the company divided by the equity of the company. The equity of the company and earnings, let's just start with earnings. Earnings are simply the revenue of the business, all the sales that they made all year long, minus all of the expenses of the business, everything they can write off to reduce their, their tax burden, and then minus the taxes, minus the interest payments, all of that stuff, minus appreciation 
uh, minus depreciation and amortization. So minus so everything. So it's EBITDA. It's EBITDA. No, it's after EBITDA. No, no, I know it's after EBITDA, but they use the EBITDA number. They don't just use straight up earnings. Right. They use the EBITDA number and then they subtract taxes, depreciation, amortization and interest. And you end up with earnings. OK, so basically the top line of a company on an income statement is the revenue and the bottom line is the earnings. OK, so if we divide the overall um, earnings of the company by the equity, we get return on equity. So let's take a look at what equity is. You take the assets of the business. So that's everything you own, regardless of whether you owe any money on it or not. You put the value of all that stuff in. And gap accounting is very specific about how you put the value of an asset in the business. So for example, if one of the assets of your business is stock in Coca-Cola, the gap accounting requires that you put in the value of the Coca-Cola stock on the last day of the month at 4 p.m. Hmm. Okay, that you where you close the books. At 4 p.m., that's the new value of Coca-Cola as far as gap accounting goes. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah, you gotta pick a time. Right. But if it's a private company that's not publicly traded, there is no market price for the company. So they put in the price you paid for it. Now that becomes rather interesting, right? Because the that price is. you paid for it, if you bought it 30 years ago, yeah, and it's yeah, been a yeah. growing company, no way reflects the real true value of that business. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So th there's just rules about accounting that you need to study. So in any case, you take the assets of the business and you subtract out all of the things you owe. All right, so assets can be screwed up eight ways to Sunday, but liabilities are almost always exactly right. <laughs> They're what you really owe people. And so about the only one that's really not a real liability is deferred taxes, but we're not, it is a real liability. You just might not ever have to pay it. So you subtract from assets all of the, the liabilities, everything you owe, and what you have left over is called equity. Okay. Got so it. You so assets minus liabilities is equity. And you divide equity number into the earnings number and you get a return on equity, ROE. Okay. All right. Now the number should be 10% or better for, for a good company. And we like to see it at 15% or better. But the key thing we're talking about here about management is that under this management team, ROE is getting better. So you got ROE, which is a sign of how the management team is doing using my money. In other words, if we liquidated this business and I own all of it, then I should get roughly what the equity number is. And now management's using my equity and producing some kind of earnings on that. And that earnings figure um, is divided by the equity is the return on equity number. And it's basically telling me how management's doing using my money. Okay? Yeah, that makes sense. So if I put my money in a bank, it would be under 1%. If I put my money in Apple, it might be 30%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, What's ROIC? It's the same number, but instead of dividing earnings by just the equity, we add to the equity the long-term debt of the company. So it's equity plus debt. And that is called... So it's return, return on invested capital. 
Yep. And then you take earnings divided by equity plus debt. Right. And so invested capital is the term for the equity and the borrowings that the company has. Because now management has to deliver not only on the money that you left them in the company, but also the money they borrowed from the bank. They need to make a good return on that as well. So if they have a, a return on equity, let's say of 30%, and then they borrowed a bunch of money, their return on invested capital would probably be less than 30%, right? Would have to be less than 30% because the, the numbers are both being divided into the same amount of earnings. So if there's any debt in the company at all, then return on invested capital will be lower than return on equity. Got it. Okay. Got it. Okay. So this is the two numbers that get manipulated, that, that are hard for management to manipulate. And it's very, very quick. You're, you're quick to see that return on equity is going down or return on invested capital is going down. It's going down rapidly. They're not making very good purchases. They're buying stuff that doesn't produce enough earnings compared to the amount of money they put in it, um, including the borrowings. So those are both big red flags. They're screaming that management has a problem here. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. And I think I think what you said was interesting that it's hard for them to manipulate them. Very tough to manipulate, to manipulate those. those numbers. Yep. Yeah. In fact, you know, there's a lot of real good investors that do what I do that look almost entirely at, rever at return on invested capital. Many people, including maybe Warren Buffett, I think might say this as well, that if you only could look at one number, that would be the number to look at. Return on invested capital. All right. Now, the part that's the third number that we look at carefully with management to try to determine if they're if they're turning traders on us is the debt number. Again, debt can kill you as an investor in a public company. Debt to a private investor in a private company is less likely to kill you. You're likely to end up with some of your company if you have to restructure. But in a public company, the way the courts work you are going to be assumed to be wiped out if you have to go into restructuring because you can't pay the debt for any reason whatsoever. And this is where management teams are able to steal public companies and they do it all the time. They're busy doing it one after the other in the oil field patch right now, taking their companies into bankruptcy entirely to shed the debt, to be more competitive against other companies that have gone into bankruptcy and shed their debt. So, I mean, so what literally. do you look for? You look at the debt and, and okay, let's say they have more than zero. They have, they have some debt. What do right. you look for? Um, the best thing to look for is that you can pay your debt off out of free cash flow. This is the safest thing to look for, is the debt can be paid off out of free cash flow in three years, and it's not getting longer. It's getting shorter. Okay. All right. So they are paying it Less off. Less than three years. From free cash flow. Right. So let me let me go back to CF Industries. CF Industries loaded up on billions of dollars of debt in 2014. It would have taken something like 10 years for CF Industries to pay off their debt out of free cash flow. 10 years. And yeah. three is as maximum as you want to go. All right. So, but the next year, it dropped to four years to pay it off because they paid off a huge pile of it. All right, so it dropped to four years and they increased their earnings, so or their free cash flow. And last year in 2015, it would only take about two and a half years to pay off all of their debt. So the company aggressively is trying to pay down their debt out of free cash flow. 
um, while still borrowing money, they're still rolling over their debt, um, and they're still paying dividends. So the, the argument would be that they should be protecting. See, if, 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 if only one person owns CF, it's almost certain that they wouldn't be demanding a dividend out of the company right now. They would be demanding they get rid of the debt. But since yeah. it's spread across all these people who may have different interests, the management team feels obligated to continue to pay the dividend so people won't sell off the stock. Now, I don't know why they're so worried about them not selling off the stock, except that they have options and they want to make sure they're exercisable. I mean, if it was me and I was managing that company, I would say, hey, I hope they sell the heck out of that stock. We're going to pay off the debt. We're cutting the dividend to zero and we're getting rid of it completely right now. Um, and I hope the stock price drops because we would like to take some of our equity and buy back stock at a huge discount to its real value. That would be smart. Mm -hmm. And every smart shareholder would support that. So these guys are basically doing dumb things to try to protect dumb money. And it's, it's ridiculous. And it shows that the management team at CF is not entirely thinking like an owner. Not entirely mm -hmm. thinking like an owner. So when we see these numbers change like this, return on equity, return on invested capital and debt changing in a negative way, it throws up a red flag and you really have to get in there and start understanding it. And my big mistake at Horsehead was that I allowed debt to creep up on me over time as this company kept failing to get their plant finished. Now, all the while, the management team telling me that the issues with the plant were normal overruns of costs that happened, um, they're, they're right, virtually in every plant ever built. There's these yeah, overruns. Yeah, I mean, it's probably true. Well, it turned out it wasn't true, that they were actually <laughs> hiding serious difficulties. And these bastards came, you know, literally two weeks before they went bankrupt, they were, they were saying that the, the plant is fantastic and, and will be finished up in a matter of a few months. And then they go into bankruptcy court and their lawyers argue straight up. Plant was absolutely worthless and nothing but a hundred million dollar liability. Because we asked the court in, we asked the judge in court, just give us this plant that they're saying is worthless. Just give it to us. We'll take it and we'll, we'll drop the whole thing. We'll just take the plant and walk away. And of course they wouldn't do it because they knew it was valuable. So basically this management team was willing to talk out of both sides of its face uh, to the people who supposedly own the business. And it's just heinous that they do that stuff. So my mistake with Horsehead was watching debt creep up to higher and higher numbers as free cash flow crept down. I should have I should have had huge red flags going up right there and either gotten management to agree to do a, a rights offering, or recapitalize the company, something, right? Other than just allow this debt to pile up. You know, yeah. sell a couple of subsidiaries. They could have done many different things. So... I've learned my lesson on that. Debt can kill. And if you allow it to sneak up on you, you know, shame on you. It's it's a big red flag. Okay. All right. Okay. So yeah. any questions about ROE, ROIC, or debt? Those are the critical numbers for management. Um, one, one more couple things on this is that I have discovered that board members in many, many companies are simply bootlickers. They're hired by the CEO at $250,000 a year. And they are willing to just go along to get along. And there's a great book out there. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's written by Ross Perot and his experience with the GM board when he was put on the GM board when they, when they bought his company, EDS. 
And he wrote a book that just, I mean, you think I'm being mean? I see the look on your face right now. You think I'm being mean to these guys? You should read Ross's book about one of the most prestigious boards in America. And they were bootlickers, all of them. No matter what their professional backgrounds and curriculum vitae was, these people could not stand up to Roger Smith in a minute. So this is something you need to know about your board. Are they independent? Are they willing to stand up to a CEO and fire the CEO? Or are they cronies of the CEO? And you need yeah, to know very, that. Very good point. Very good point. And I think the larger point is also that the board of directors is part of, when you look at management in quotes, the board of directors is part of that. It's easy to forget about them. We look at the CEO, we look at the CFO, we look at who founded it and if they're still around. It's very easy to overlook the people that are on the board. And I think especially how they have that board populated, you know, I, like who represents what interests. I think that's very interesting. I think it's so hard to figure out what you're going to get. I mean, take take Coca-Cola, for example. Warren Buffett's son just up until recently was on the board of Coca-Cola. Warren Buffett for many, many years has been the leading uh, advocate of of reducing CEO pay, like just screaming out there that the CEOs are paying themselves a king's ransom. They don't really deserve it. They're giving themselves raises for all kinds of reasons, okay? His son is on the board of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is struggling for many years, and what does it do? It raises the CEO's pay. And this is a CEO, they just basically retired. I wanted to say fired, but I, I won't. They just retired that CEO. Did absolutely nothing good. Nothing good happened for the shareholders. The company didn't grow. Nothing. And yet the guy got paid a bigger and bigger paycheck. And did Warren Buffett's son raise his voice in opposition? No. Did he even vote against the pay raises? No. Did Warren Buffett raise his voice? No. So what this tells you is that there's tremendous social pressure on the people in these high status positions, very public, very, very well known, that pressures them to not do anything that would be considered mean or ugly or, or in any way disparaging to the reputation of this high powered CEO. They just won't do it. The reputation. I think, I think that's true a lot of the time. Yeah, I do. I think you're right. Yep. Unfortunate it's, as hell, but it's true. It makes me sad because I I love the corporate <laughs> such a such a nerdy thing to say, but I love the corporate structure and um, so when it works well, it works really well, and it's hard to get it to work well. Yeah, and I'll tell you, in this marketplace, I'm starting to see this thing leaking at the seams, like a like a balloon that's blown, you know, that's stitched together in lots of seams, and it's all good when you don't put enough pressure in. But when you put a lot of pressure in, that thing starts to leak. And I feel like our corporate system is leaking at the seams all over the place now. As we've gone years with, with uh, artificially low interest rates that are encouraging companies to borrow stock, uh, to borrow money and buy back their own stock regardless of the price in order to jack up the options return for the CEO. Uh, they're going out and acquiring other companies regardless of return on equity, regardless of return on capital, regardless of the debt size as if there's no tomorrow, as if five years from now, interest rates won't be double what they are today. But you'd see these guys in the corporate world, they're not going to be there five years. They're going to retire and leave these pile of problems to some other CEO on somebody else's watch, and they're going to walk away 
with $100 million or $150 million for yeah, being insane. the CEO. It's insane. It's insane. Right now, Dad, Rex Tillerson we is- we agree. Oh, we do agree. I mean, Tillerson <laughs> has been appointed Secretary of State by Donald Trump, and I think he'd probably make a great Secretary of State. But out comes this little thing that they've got to worry about at Exxon, which is, gee, if uh, Rex was to stick around until March and retire on time, he would get a $160 million bonus. $160 million. Thank you very much. So maybe he's worth it. But, you know, those numbers have gotten to a place where you just can't believe that these guys could possibly be worth that kind of payment. I mean, yeah. it's like the Picasso conversation of 20 minutes ago. Yeah. At, at a certain point, yes, they're worth something. And yes, there's a marketplace. But probably what they're selling for now is a pure speculation. Maybe somebody else will, will match that price and the market will continue to go up. Yeah, exactly. So if you're hearing a little bit of frustration in my voice, it is true. I'm frustrated by the way the system is. I think there are great things that the corporate system does, but I think that there are amazing, amazing um, imbalances that get created because these management people are professional mercenaries. The boards that they hire are equally professional mercenaries in many of the time. They don't have the same skin in the game as a founder. They certainly don't have the skin in the game as an investor. And the result of that is this terrible imbalance of, of, uh, of incentives, you know? And so if, if, if it's true that all you have to do to figure out what's going on is to follow the money, then follow the money in your corporation. And if your CEOs are overpaying themselves, if they're jacking up debt, if they're lowering return on equity, that's a scary thing to be investing in. You should probably run for the hills. So on a happier note, I would like next time to talk about what makes a good CEO and how to look for those ones. Good. Let's talk about some great CEOs and, and exactly. some things they have in common, okay? And then you exactly. can kind of get an idea about what to look for. And I'll tell you, it's going to narrow down the number of companies you can invest in, particularly at the, <laughs> at the Fortune 500 level. Uh, well, that's but it's what good the to four know. principles do. Absolutely. So I guess, okay, until then. Time to go play. Until then, let's just say happy holidays to everybody. Yeah, happy holidays. And happy almost end of 2016. It's <laughs> going to be good to get rid of this year. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we will, we will talk to you guys next time. And um, thanks, everybody. Okay, Bye. have a great holiday. Happy New Year. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.